If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 12. We'll soon be reading in verse 33. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you are free to borrow one of the pew Bibles in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Matthew chapter 12 on page 600 and, or excuse me, 767 of that Bible. I'm sure whatever is on page 600 something is also good, but we're not going to be reading that this morning. So it's 767. The evangelical church today has a lot of problems. If we were to take a poll of the people who are in here, given the makeup of our congregation, I think that we could draw some opinions as to why the evangelical church has so many problems today. They don't seem to care enough about the Word. They don't put a great deal of stock in preaching, or maybe they're just focused on drawing crowds. They're not focused enough on Jesus And while we could provide a number of guesses and opinions, none of us are sociologists. We don't have data to back that stuff up. And even if we did, that data is awfully hard to pull through. It's tough to know what exactly the problems are with the church. If I were to give you my best guess, it would be something along the lines of within the realm of not paying attention to the Word and not paying attention to the good preaching of the Word, it has to do more with just repentance than with anything else. It's not that the evangelical church isn't talking about Jesus. I think, honestly, if you go to almost any evangelical church, they're going to talk about Jesus, and they're going to do that quite a bit. And most of the time, they're really dealing with the Word of God. But I think often, not always, and there are, by the way, there are problems with churches that don't do this. There are problems with churches that preach repentance all the time. We're not saying that they're outside of issues within the church, but I think that a great deal of churches don't like to preach repentance. They teach of faith, they will teach of grace, they will teach of mercy, but they don't want to speak of repentance. Now, I, I know that we are a little bit dissimilar because we, we strive to speak of repentance and not just to tell the world that they need to repent. We are willing to take time every week out of our worship to go before the Lord in repentance. Josh faithfully, weekly, brings us a prayer of repentance, not only individually for, to, to lead us in remembrance of how we ought to repent, but, but corporately, that we ourselves, even those who have been brought by the blood of Jesus Christ, are indeed still in need of repentance. This was, this was the whole basis, honestly, for the kicking off of the Reformation. Martin Luther's 95 Theses begins with the fact that Jesus has called us not to an item of repentance, but to a lifelong position of repentance. Jesus came and he proclaimed the kingdom. And by all accounts, it is a kingdom of grace, of mercy and kindness and compassion and goodness to all. The question, though, is how do we gain access to that? Just because it's out there for everybody doesn't mean that it's automatically applied to everybody. We, we've started to look into colleges for Lily. And for some of you who have not been on the internet lately, that's really expensive. But there is good news for us. There's like one, or uh, excuse me, $7.4 billion worth of scholarships that are awarded annually. It's just out there. But we don't just get it because it's there. It's not just showing up in our bank account. Lily has to go through and we have to go through with her, figure out which, which ones are applicable to her, and then find the, the forms to fill out and have the essays written and apply for them. We, you have to go about attaining it somehow. 
How do we attain this good kingdom? How do we attain mercy and kindness and grace from our Lord Jesus Christ? It is indeed, as we've read repeatedly, we've talked about how good and kind Jesus is always and to everyone. Yet we are reminded that the summary that Matthew provides for that preaching of the kingdom of God is this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When he wants to summarize what Jesus speaks of, it comes in the word repentance. It doesn't matter who you are. Prostitute, tax collector, Gentile, a Pharisee, a scribe, sinners, all the way through. There is access to the kingdom of God through repentance and faith. The question is, why ought we repent? Jesus has, in the passage that we've led up to, we spoke of last week, and even even going back two weeks before that, this issue of the Sabbath, of the Pharisees, not understanding who God is, having a wrong interpretation of the law because they they have a wrong understanding of who God is, and then even the, the sin against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus is looking at them and is instructing them that you need to change You need to change what you are doing. You need to change how you address the world. You need to change how you think about God. That change is nothing short of repentance. And here today, he gives us reasons why. Let us read from the book of Matthew, beginning in chapter 12 and uh, verse 33. And there, the word of the Lord says this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. A queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven 
is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of our God. Why ought we repent? First, you should repent because of what you say. You should repent because of what you say. The Bible often tells us that we are not to judge by appearances, but we are to judge by what is true in the heart, not by what the looks of something are, but by the inner person. David, textbook example of this, short, ruddy, he doesn't look like a king, he's young, Saul, beautiful, tall, broad-shouldered, looks like the king you want. One of them is good, one of them is evil. Do not judge by appearances. Well, we are prone to do that. Each and every one of us does that, and probably more prone than you would suppose. We all have filters that we quite liberally apply to the things that we say. Those filters are good. We need them. We don't want unfiltered access to one another's hearts. Trust me, you don't want that. And so it's good that we filter those things. This is exactly, I think, what James 3 is applauding us for. You're taming the tongue. You know how to to make the tongue say things that are good and true and right and not always the things that pop into your head at any given moment. I think that we need these filters. We should work on taming the tongue and even probably have a stricter use of them. Maybe that's just me. But we'll admit that at times those filters don't quite work right. We're tired. The filter's sitting a little akimbo. It lets things through every once in a while. Or we're angry so much pressure behind the filter that it can't keep all of the all of the overflow in anger frustration and tiredness and drowsiness these these words seep out of us when jesus says in verse 36 that every careless word will be judged these are the kinds of words he means he's not talking about the carefully crafted cultivated and curated words and appearances that you give out to the world, but rather the words that we try to blow off. and say, listen, I know I said that. You got to understand, I'm running on very little sleep. I, excuse me. And, and I was angry. I, I know that I said those sort of piercing and mean things to you, but honestly, it was just, I've just been so frustrated at person X or, or this thing at work, and I'm just angry, and I, I shouldn't have said that, and I'm sorry, but you know that's not who I am. And Jesus, I think, would stop us right there. It's perfectly fine to ask for forgiveness, to say that those things were wrong, but I think that he would instruct us that that is exactly who we are. That little bit that seeps through the filter, that's the overflow. That's, that's what is leaking out of your heart. That is the unfiltered access that people get every once in a while to who you really are. There's something quite evil about paparazzi, right? So the paparazzi are people who live their lives to take these sort of unsolicited photos of famous people, usually Hollywood actors. And there's a reason why that appeals to people. They, they want to see picture of Hollywood people at their worst. They want to see them with their hair bedraggled, with their eyes super baggy, that moment when they're kind of out of shape, when they're not at their best. They, they are taking out the trash early Sunday morning, something like that, and they, they want to see that because they can look at those pictures and be like, they're just like us. They're not perfect in all their ways. They don't have their fancy suits and their fancy dresses on. They don't have their hair perfect. They don't have all their makeup on. 
They are, they're just like us. We have the sneaking suspicion that it's these sort of unguarded moments that we get to see who the real person is. It's probably correct, honestly. But as correct as it is for them, it is also correct for us. Those unguarded moments. The moments when the words just sort of, we think, accidentally spill out of us. When our thoughts are unguarded and unfiltered. These are the moments that we tell people who we really are. Those are not accidents. Those are mirrors. That's who you are. The Pharisees, by the way, have done something along the lines of just this. When you go back and you read the issue of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in verse 24, it says, When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were asking, Is this David? Is this the son of David? They said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And it makes it seem like they're saying this abroad. But we have every reason to think that they meant nothing about publishing that statement. They didn't mean for it to be heard. Maybe they were collaborating. Maybe they were just spitballing ideas. Maybe they all truly believed this, but they were, as we would have to believe, very prone to not get this sown far and wide. The people loved Jesus. To stand against him at this point would have been hard. It would have been folly. And so it's important that when, in verse 25, we hear of Jesus, it says that he knows their thoughts. He doesn't hear it. It's not reported to him. They want to keep this to themselves. They didn't say it for everybody to hear. Their unintended, careless words. Jesus warned them of their blasphemy. Even if it's covered in secrecy, we'll be judged. The Lord hears all and Jesus knows all. And those little unintended words who show what you are, those will lead to your condemnation. Those lead to you being judged. And all of this is coming from Jesus, who, when betrayed, when faced with false accusations, when given a clown trial, when his supporters faded, when he needed them the most, when he is facing his darkest time, filled with very little sleep, and one has to believe a good deal of anger at the entire situation. He doesn't speak. He doesn't accuse. He doesn't threaten. He doesn't chide. But what does he say? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He blesses. Why? Because it's the overflow of his heart. Now, the overflow tells us, in the same way we hear who Jesus is, most particularly at that moment, we also hear who we are in those moments. If the tree is evil, we speak evil. If the root is good, if the trunk is good, if the tree is good, we speak good things. If you then, in these moments of overflow, speak what is evil, then you yourself are evil. And if there is anything that 21st century Westerners know, we know, is that you can't change your nature. The rallying cry of the past 20 years in Western society has been, I was born this way. And Jesus says, you need to, though. You need to change who you are. How? How can we change our nature? 
call out to the creator of the trees and the bush. We call out to the one who makes fields and flowers. We call out to him and we say, make me a better tree. And that begins, unsurprisingly, with knowing that we need to be better, with knowing that who we are isn't sufficient of asking God to change who we are, that we might be different than who we are. That is repentance. That's repentance. It's walking away from your sin and trusting in the Lord. Every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. Repent then because of what you've said. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Secondly, repent because of what you've heard. Repent because of what you've heard. A second portion of these four portions starts off with a real conciliatory tone. The, the Pharisees and the scribes come to him immediately after him saying this. He's done nothing but hand blast them for quite a while. And so they think maybe we ought to just kind of calm things down and say, listen, Jesus, all right, you and I, we're not seeing eye to eye. Uh, You've you got to understand the whole, is he the son of David thing kind of freaked us out. Uh, we've, we've had false messiahs come through before. We don't want to get caught up in a movement for someone who's just going to let us down and look silly and foolish. Whatever the reasons are, they come to him and they say, listen, we'll, we'll meet you halfway. All we need is a sign. Just a sign. Just something that, that gives us an affirmation from God, an undoubted affirmation from God that you are who you claim to be or who you seem to think you are. If you can give us something like that, we'll, we'll amend, we'll change, we'll listen. This is not an unusual request. I think something plenty of people in here have done, right? God, if you're real, uh, like, let me know. If you care, I'm struggling here, I'm, I'm having a hard time in life. If you really are good and kind to me, give me a sign that, that will help me trust in you. If you really have forgiven me, if you really want me to follow you, if you really dot, 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 do something. And even though they are coming with all this conciliatory language, trying to sort of make amends, meet Jesus halfway, Jesus immediately turns on them and says, it's an evil and adulterous generation who does this. You're adulterous. You've, you've left God. You've departed from God. You, you aren't near God. You're, you're far from him. You're evil that asks for something like this. It seems like a reasonable request, and Jesus says that it's evil. Why? A couple of reasons, probably. First, I don't think that Jesus has given them anything but signs. Like, he's just walking around healing everyone who comes to him. He's casting out demons. The whole bit about casting out demons was kind of lock, stock, and barrel, the thing that demonstrated that Jesus was from God. If, if Satan casts out Satan, his kingdom can't stand. I must not be from Satan. That means the kingdom of God is here among you. So he's, he's done nothing but give them affirmation of this. But maybe they're saying, yeah, yeah, we know about the miracles, but we want a voice from heaven, a sign. We want something distinct from this. Okay, well, I think that Jesus would then point even at his character. If you understood me, you would know that I and the Father are one. You would know that I am with God, that God is with me, that I am the servant who has been sent in the words of Isaiah. As Jesus will say in John 10, if I am doing the works of my Father, then if I, excuse me, 
That's not what he says. He says something different, so we're going to start that John 10 quote again because I can't read. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you will know and understand that I, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He says, you're having trouble with my words. Fair enough. Put my words aside. Look at the things that I'm doing. If you know the character of God, you see the character of God in the very things that I'm doing. But the last thing is simply the example that he actually gives to them. There is one sign of affirmation that will be given to them. Three days and nights in the belly of a fish sat Jonah the prophet, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet who comes off as almost the worst prophet imaginable who is actually a godly prophet in the Old Testament. We know that he's a prophet sent from God, that God talks to him, but the book that's named after Jonah paints Jonah in just the worst light. God tells him to go and preach to the Ninevites. Now, be it known, the Ninevites were just horrible enemies of Israel, and he probably hated them with a burning fire, and so God tells him to go preach to him, and he says, no thanks, I'm going to go as far away from them. And so he gets on a boat. He goes as far away as he can. And God says, eh. So he sends a storm. Jonah's thrown overboard. And as Jonah is going to the depths of the sea, going down to Sheol, going down to death, he knows he's going to die. God sends a fish, swallows him up, vomits him back on shore. Jonah begrudgingly tracks his way across the desert to Nineveh begrudgingly preaches to Nineveh, a a sermon that is uninspiring in every sense of the word. If you think that I'm bad, listen to the works of Jonah. Now, you might think at least Jonah got the service over quickly. Nevertheless, he shows up and he says, 40 days and you're all going to be overthrown. Done. And people in Nineveh repent. Jesus says, that's the sign you're going to get. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Symbolism does seem a bit awkward. After all, Jonah's preaching occurred after the sign. Jesus' preaching occurs before the sign. But I think that's the whole point. Jesus isn't Jonah. Jesus is the opposite of Jonah. Jonah was a disobedient prophet who ran away who had to be brought near to death so that he would overcome his own reluctance, that he could proclaim destruction to his enemies, and he was believed. Jesus was a faithful son who came near to all of us by his own good pleasure. He proclaimed the good news and life in compassion and love to all who would hear, and especially his enemies, and was brought to death to give them life. Jesus is greater on every level than Jonah. One is believed to be a prophet in Israel. The other one is said to have demons. Who's wrong? Jonah was disobedient. Jesus was faithful. Jonah went from life to near death. Jesus all the way through death to life. Jonah was acting out of his hatred for the Ninevites. Jesus out of love. The only thing that they have in common is they both went to enemies. Jonah was sent to proclaim destruction. Jesus was sent to proclaim good news. Jonah was brought near to death for his own sake. Jesus was sent to death and rescued for ours. Jesus is greater. 
You believe, Jesus says, that Jonah was a prophet, and yet one truly greater than Jonah is here. And that inevitably will be seen in my resurrection. Three days and three nights. By the Hebrew reckoning, any day spent in the ground is a day in the ground. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. doesn't matter if it's part of days. They don't count time like we do. God, by that very act, confirms his preaching, his life, his works by raising him from the dead. Does God give his approval to Jesus Christ? Amen. He raises him from the dead. What evil men did was undeserved and unjust, and God undoes it in one fell swoop by bringing Jesus up out of the grave. You want to know what true wisdom is. You want to know how to act rightly in the world. The Queen of Sheba came from far to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what wisdom is. I'm telling you how to act. Listen to me. Listen to my words. Because something greater than Solomon is here. Now, the preaching and the words of Jesus, it's all before us. Jesus speaks to us. His words are confirmed in the resurrection. We stand in a more condemning spot than the Pharisees did and the scribes did, who didn't know of his resurrection. At this point in time, they hadn't seen of it. They hadn't heard of it. They hadn't even thought of it. They have no idea what he's talking about here. We have every reason to understand, and it's been confirmed. The words of Jesus are right, good, and true. You listen to lesser people. You listen to lesser men and women. You listen to lesser people who tell you how to handle conflict and pain and wants, how to find love and peace and joy. You listen to them in podcasts, and YouTube. You listen to them on TV. You listen to them in books. You listen to them. You listen to yourself, your own heart, your own instincts, telling you how to handle yourself in the world. And they are all lesser than this man. He calls people to himself because he's gracious, because he's kind. The, the mercy of God is not meant to say that repentance doesn't matter. The forgiveness of, of God is not meant to make you believe that God just automatically forgives and no repentance and turning from your sin matters. The kindness of God, Paul says, is to lead you to repentance because it's rich in mercy and in kindness and goodness. The words of Jesus has gone out. You should repent because Nineveh heard a lesser man and heard those words turned. You should repent because Jesus' words and works are true. You should repent because of what you've heard. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Third, we should repent because of what will happen. We should repent because of what will happen. The third section of text that we have here, um, I'll be honest with you, is a parable that is obscure and a little bit obtuse. And I'm going to do my best to kind of explain what I think that it means, but I'm going to tell you when I get before Jesus, this is not what I'm hanging my hat on, so take this as you will, but I think that this is kind of what he means in context. I want to mention a couple things about what he says here to put this into context. He mentions that this seems to be centered on an individual. 
right? So it's one person who has a demon driven out of him, and then that demon goes to waterless places and comes back. And so it seems like it's centered on an individual, but Jesus clearly thinks that this is important for this entire generation, for the, the Pharisees and the scribes who are standing before him. So we ought not think that it just applies to individuals. Like, this only matters for people who have demons driven out of them. It matters for us. Okay, this isn't just for your friend Bob who had his demon driven out and you're like, I hope Bob's doing okay and that guy doesn't come back. No, 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 not the Bob in our congregation, by the way. I used to use the name Bob as my general guy all the time and then we got a Bob and I changed it to Frank and we haven't gotten a Frank, but anyways. So it's not the general guy out there, right? But he's, he's talking, this is an illustration for everybody, okay? So for the, the Pharisees and scribes before him. And secondly, this seems to be a quite metaphorical picture even of that individual, he talks about the individual like he's a house, like they've got furniture in them. I, it makes it seem like this is indeed a parable. It's not meant to teach us, I don't think, exactly how demons work in the world. But what does happen? Demons driven out, goes out into these waterless places, and like the anti-prodigal son says, you know, my home is actually better than this place, so I'm going to go back and see how everything is. And when he returns, the person, the house that he left, is organized. It's swept, it's clean, but it's empty. He says, all right, well, we can, we can party out here. And he invites other demons to come along with him, and they join in the fact that, well, they're going to overtake this person, and the last state of him is worse than the first. It's worse to have a legion of demons in you than it is to have one. I think that the meaning that Jesus wants to pass on specifically to the Pharisees and scribes is this. My exercising demons isn't just for the individuals who experience it, but for all. There is no doubt who I am by the simple fact that I'm doing the very things that I'm doing. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than Solomon. I am greater than Jonah. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the binder of Satan. I'm the wielder of the Spirit. I'm the bringer of the kingdom. There's no more confusion. There's no more wondering. The demons being sent out have made it clear. But you don't want clarity you want neutrality. You want to think about it. You want to ponder what it might mean for the future. You've got to ponder what this does to your life and what it, it might mean for your future and, and how you have always believed and how that's going to change. You stand afraid of repentance. You want to sign. You want to wait and you want to see. You want to check and you want to verify. So you fill yourself with nothing because you think that you have orderly orderliness and cleanliness, you think you're safe. But the demons have gone, and now is the time to see and to taste. Now is the time to hear and to believe, to know and to repent, but still you do nothing. If you don't fill my, yourself with my teaching, with my word, with my commandments, if you don't fill yourself with my grace and my mercy, if you don't feel even the weight of your own sinful words, You'll wait, and you'll wait, and you'll wait, and time will pass, and those demons, they will come back. The confusion, the blindness, it will all come back. You'll be further gone than you can imagine. It's like the parable of the farmer with the absolute surplus crop. He says, what am I going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to fill all my grain into the barn so I'll have food for years. And the Lord comes to him and says, no, tonight your life is required of you. There the pain is death. 
Here the pain is demons. The point seems to be this. This is now the time for decision and the time for action. Today is the day of salvation. Friend, if you haven't committed, what, what are you waiting for? You're, are you waiting for Jesus' words to get clearer? Are you waiting for him to become somehow more real to you? Are you waiting for a confirmation of him? He has died and he has risen again. We have good witness, reasons to believe that that isn't a fairy tale. It's not something that we've made up throughout the years. It's not something that a, a bunch of good men said, hey, we can probably pull over something on the entire world. They said, we saw it. We felt it. The one man in all the world who had the most to lose signed on. Paul had everything going for him. And he hated the church. And yet, in a, in a heartbeat, he drops all of it to follow this path, which, by the way, leads to absolute destruction for his life. Right, Paul doesn't live anything close to a comfortably worldly life. It's filled with hardship and difficulty. What are you waiting for? He's died and risen. He's completed his work. Not only is church history a gathering of the proof, the people who are here are proof. The Lord has worked in their lives. You wonder if there's enough reason for faith, enough proof for faith. But proof works two ways. You don't live your life based on proof. What proof do you have that it's not true? What proof do you have that he didn't get up out of the grave? What proof do you have that you're going to be okay without repenting? There is no proof. It's all based on faith. It's all based on faith. From every scientist to every knuckle-dragging numbskull in the world, it's all based on faith. Every one of us lives our life based on faith. You ought to believe the right and good things. The demons are gone. Fill the house. But that is not the only result. Passage goes on. The last story is also the result of repentance. His mother and his brothers come. The man says, hey, your, your mom and your, your bros are here. And he says, who is my mother and my brothers? Kind of an odd question. You'd think Jesus would know. Apparently he does. He says, these are my mother and my brothers and sisters. This is my family, those who do the will of the Father in heaven. Those who repent and follow in the steps that Jesus has been leading us in aren't just acquaintances with him. They don't just get to call themselves citizens of the same country as though they're countrymen, but they don't really know one another. He's not just somebody that you follow on social media. He's not just our Lord and we are simply servants of him. We don't just know him from a distance, but he is our brother. He is as near to us as family. God, through Jesus, is our Father, close, filled with love, and bonded by the very blood of Jesus Christ. Those who, like Jesus, listen, trust, obey, and confess, that is the result. No repentance, worse than you could possibly imagine. Repentance, more blessing and glory and goodness than you can conceive of. Jesus would say in John 17, I do not ask for these only, that is his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Even as he loved Jesus. The all-powerful, almighty God, with no imperfections, who has created everything by simply speaking it into existence, puts all of his efforts and energy and power into loving his Son and the Spirit and the Spirit and the Son into him, and he says, that is the very love by which you love those who call out to you in repentance. The same exact love, no difference. The same precise love. This is the result of turning to God in repentance. God does not make us grovel. He does not have a list of things that we need to do to show that it's real and true. He doesn't make you feel small for this act. He doesn't try to belittle you. He does not hold it out and make us earn it. But he freely gives it to us. Family, love, acceptance, goodness, newness, mercy, kindness. It is all there for those who ask for it. It is all there for those who will repent, who will turn from their sin and their shame and call upon Jesus, not only as their Savior, but as their brother. What an incredibly wonderful and generous Savior. So today, as long as it is called today, repent and call upon the name of your Lord. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let us pray. Father, our hearts, while having been renewed by the Spirit, still tell of our flesh and our sin. They still lust for the things of this world, signified by words spoken in dark places, spoken under our breath, to no one in particular, that no one might hear. Forgive these words. And let our words of repentance and faith stand above them all. Let our words of confession and repentance justify us, calling as they do on the better witness of Jesus and his love. He has confessed himself our Savior, our Lord, our King, our brother, and our near friend. We have heard of his compassion for us, his calling for us. We have come. Forgive us. Make us yours. Call us home. We ask all of this in the gracious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for our good and for his glory. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response in the presence.